whatever reason, people overhire data scientists and they underhire all of the foundational type of stuff. Welcome back to Delivery Interrupted. Today, we'll be diving into the DevOps side of data science. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes of our series on MLOps, we covered the basics of machine learning, we talked a lot about the all-important data, and we discussed the use of pipelines within machine learning. If you haven't given them a listen yet, I may be biased, but I think you should go check them out. So today, we'll be diving into the nitty-gritty DevOps details. We'll be talking about the tools out there now, the tooling that's missing, and what data scientists need from operations. And we'll talk about what it takes to support the engineering needs of a machine learning team. The DevOps practices of culture, automation, measurement, sharing, and continuous improvement apply just as much to machine learning and data science teams as they do to traditional application development teams. However, as you can imagine from our past episodes in this series, things look a little different in the machine learning world. I asked Hannes about how DevOps practices apply to ML teams. So uh, how do DevOps practices fit into the development of applications that leverage machine learning? So I think currently there's a lot of things we can learn from the software engineering and from the DevOps world. That's Hannes Hopke. If you remember from the previous episodes, Hannes was a co-author on the book, Building Machine Learning Pipelines. As of today, I think a lot of data scientists and machine learning engineers they're still spending so much time with like feature engineering, model deployment, data quality, aligning compute resources, scheduling of, of tasks, building those pipelines. And I think that's how, to me, it feels like back maybe in the, in the early 90s when somebody built an HTML page, but then also was responsible to set up Apache web servers and the CGI scripts and everything. And all of a sudden you, you were like the DevOps engineer and the the site reliability engineer and the web designer and the front end and back end designer in the same person. And over time, we've seen that those functions have split into highly specialized fields with like amazing developments, right? Uh, we have in the DevOps world, we have Kubernetes developed, like game changer, amazing applications, which we can do browser side only. Uh, we have back end developments with all the Python frameworks and Ruby developments in the last two decades, it's pretty amazing things. And I would expect we, we see similar trends in the data science world, where now we sort of like slowly seek to merge different roles between data scientists and machine learning engineers. I think they're sort of like, it crystallized out who is doing what. And then going forward, we're gonna have maybe even further in the, on the machine learning engineering side, um, things will crystallize even further into like how to scale machine learning models or how to do the engineering, uh, data engineering side of machine learning pipelines, et cetera. But this is, this is just a wild guess. But for right now, I think we, we see an interesting split between data science and machine learning engineering. And again, we can take a lot of good best practices from the DevOps world. Hannes's point of seeing further specialization in the MLOps sets of responsibilities really spoke to me. We've always seen this in past movements as they mature, and MLOps will be no different. 
But before we dive into what I believe will be the first set of specialist roles, let's talk about why the investment in the operations side of MLOps is so critical in the first place. Hamill had really good points about how organizations invest in the wrong areas when building out an ML team. I remember when I first met you, you were talking about how, in your opinion, when companies do decide to build out a machine learning team, they make the mistake of hiring 10 machine learning data scientists and one DevOps person when they should hire one data scientist and 10 DevOps people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Monica Rigotti is a, is this data scientist, the famous data scientist. She has this pyramid of the data science hierarchy of needs. And the very top of the like, pyramid is machine learning and AI. And the very bottom one is like data pipelines and engineering and stuff like that. And I think everybody, when I've seen, they hire people as if though that pyramid is inverted. And so I definitely agree with that. I think for whatever reason, people overhire data scientists and they underhire all for all the foundational types of stuff. That's Hamel Hussein, a data scientist currently at GitHub. You've heard from Hamel in the previous episodes in this series. Hamel was talking about Monica Rogatti's data science hierarchy of needs. I won't go through the whole thing, so I encourage you to read it on your own. But the TLDR is that the most basic needs for any AI ML project is raw data collection. That won't be a surprise if you listen to the first episode in this series. In the middle is data processing, infrastructure, pipelines, and tooling. At the top is data science-y stuff like analytics, metadata, training data, with deep learning AI at the top of the pyramid. Hamel's point is that many organizations overinvest in the top of the pyramid, but underinvest in the bottom needs. Without the supporting infrastructure, tools, and roles, the top of the pyramid can't hold itself up. This is where the previous point about specialization comes in. What roles and responsibilities need to exist in order to support the bottom of the pyramid? There's a few critical operation roles that I think any organization that's spinning up an ML team should consider. First is the data pipeline engineer. This is often referred to as simply the data engineer as well. This role is responsible for ensuring the integrity of the systems that ingest the data, process it, store it, and make it available to the data science team in a self-service way. This role will also often be responsible for providing the training pipeline service for the data scientists. The next role is the model delivery engineer. This role is responsible for building the system that takes models from the training pipeline and stores them in a model registry. This role also provides a service for the data science team to review model performance and decide whether to promote models to different application environments. The model delivery engineer will also be responsible for creating any automation required to handle model promotion and delivery into an application environment. They are the glue between data engineering, application operations, and application development. It's important to note that these roles do not have to be different teams or even different people, but someone needs to be thinking about the services and responsibilities these roles provide. In fact, like IT operations and application development roles overlap in the DevOps world, 
we see these roles overlapping in the MLOps world too. So what's a DevOps to do? And please don't berate us, we know DevOps isn't a thing. There are a few areas that will provide the most benefit to a machine learning team if you're a DevOps professional with little to no experience in ML. The first is to learn about model training pipelines. In our last episode, we talked about the importance of implementing CD pipelines for model training and delivery. Tools like Kubeflow, MLflow, and Airflow will help you build out workflows that together provide a training pipeline. As you begin to implement the pipeline and workflows, consider how you provide it as a service to your data science team. Now, there are other tools out there, such as Luigi and Argo, that are regularly used to build out training pipelines, but it's likely easiest to get started with the more special purpose tools. Docker containers are used extensively by most tools to package, deliver, and run ML models, and increasingly we are seeing a dependence on Kubernetes as well. So if containers and Kubernetes are new to you, we definitely recommend you take a crash course in both. The second area of opportunity is to learn about model registries. A model registry will take models from a pipeline and store the artifact along with its version and metadata. The MLflow project has a great registry that we recommend you look at. You can also build custom solutions with Docker and object stores like S3 and Artifactory, but only resort to custom solutions if you have to. The key required capabilities is that a pipeline has a place to put the models and metadata after training, and the models can be pulled from the registry to be delivered to the application environment. The third area is model serving tools. You can absolutely build custom solutions that take models from a registry and package it with an internal application, but it's far more common to use a model server like TensorFlow Serving or MLflow's model serving solution. A model server provides a REST endpoint to perform inference operations defined by the model's package. These solutions require that your application be updated to hit the API service provided by the model server. When an application hits the API for an inference operation, the model server will automatically use the model version that's been promoted to the relevant application environment. Model serving is a particularly large topic we could spend many podcasts diving into, but today we just want to point you in the right direction. It's also worth mentioning that Python is the lingua franca in the ML world. So if you don't have any Python knowledge, we definitely recommend brushing up on it. Let's jump back to the roles we mentioned earlier and talk a bit more about the data pipeline engineer. Again, we won't go into how to operate any of the tools we've mentioned, at least not in this episode, but we should cover some of the basic responsibilities a data pipeline engineer will need to consider. At the face of it, the services you will be responsible for maintaining are like any other enterprise application. You need to manage high availability, data integrity at the storage level, disaster recovery, and you can't ever risk dropping incoming data, and resource planning. Like many things in the world of MLOps, resource planning is a little special. We first introduced Michal Yastrzewski in episode one. My name is Michal, and I, I am DevOps cloud operator turned into machine learning, turned into a little bit of data scientist, but just enough to know what we're talking about. When speaking to Michal, 
Resource planning is one aspect that stood out to us as being a little different in the ML world. So once, uh, so that gave the birth to tools like Jupyter Notebooks, for example, when your environment actually runs on the virtual machine somewhere, that this virtual machine may be on the cloud close to your data, data locality is the term for it. And so, the, so you limit the amount of network infrastructure required and network traffic required to access those data. And you, run, you edit your code through a web app effectively. So that's how people work with Jupyter Notebooks. Sometimes like, lots of people run Jupyter Notebooks locally, but again, that's not impossible. That's, that's impossible effectively if your data is in the data center somewhere and you run it through VPN, for example. Training, for example, is much more bursty in the terms of resource management. It's like it runs from no resource consumed to every all the resources consumed like immediately, and it runs into problems like multiple training conflicting with each other, trying to consume all the same resources. Mostly memory is what what usually gets you memory of either. Uh, machine itself or GPU memory, which is seven, which is very limited resource in deep learning in particular. So you start thinking in a way that your workloads are short-lived enough in a way that they can run for a couple of days even sometimes, but they will finish. They're not constantly updated. So things like rolling upgrades became less important, but things like resource management becomes much more important. Michal called out scheduling as something that was particularly tricky for machine learning. Scheduling is extremely hard. With, extremely hard. It's much harder and much different than what you would experience with applications. So things like Kubernetes, which are meant to work with application, are struggling sometimes with the amount of scheduling that is required for machine learning. Right from my experience, for example, Kubernetes is not really well suited for a lot of short-lived tasks. It's more suited to long-lived ones. It's, it was typical that we have thousands of completed pods at the same time in our Kubernetes cluster, and it struggled then. And, and just for a clarification, when you say scheduling, you're talking about scheduling of workloads, not like cron scheduling and, and things like that. Both sometimes. Hmm. So uh, what I meant was scheduling of what runs on which machine. So we have pool of machines, like you can spin up virtual machine that has a terabyte of RAM, which will fit most of the use cases, but those VMs are extremely expensive and you want to distribute it. So distributed processing and training becomes the issue and that, that level of scheduling. So scheduling of what part of the workflow runs on which machine. The time scheduling, the cron scheduling also is not that trivial. Like everything runs on cron almost most of the time. Like workloads, like typical workloads, for example, run, run daily, right? The scheduling becomes an exercise of figuring out when to schedule workloads so they will consume the resources optimally and not compete with each other. So for example, one heavy workload will run at the noon today and we gen it generally finishes after six hours. So what another, you know, another heavy workload to run after this one finishes. So the resources are generally consumed around the clock, but at the same time, they don't compete with each other. It's typical for one workflow to kill another workflow by just consuming all the memory. 
Yeah, so one thing that really strikes me about that is these are traditional DevOps skills, like scheduling when things run, uh, as capacity planning and you know distribution of work across multiple nodes, pretty basic DevOps skills, but they take on an entirely new level of difficulty um, and require a whole new level of skill when you're working on machine learning training applications. Right, as you said, the fundamental skills are pretty much similar, but the uh, emphasis, the, the hard parts are, are different. Capacity planning is typical. Typical, like every operator working sold did some sort of capacity planning. However, when you need to think about capacity planning and scheduling in terms of, for example, specific hardware like GPU, right? Now you need to think of, think of capacity in terms of memory on a single node becomes much more important than total available memory on all the nodes. Uh, availability of GPUs becomes another level of, you know, of consideration. So it's the same scale, but on a different level. So now we've talked about some of the emerging roles and their work within MLOps. Now let's take a moment to talk about the tools, emerging and emerged. The tools aren't quite there yet. Most infrastructures were built for web apps, not ML experimentation and training pipelines. We chatted with Hamill about this. So tooling is clearly a gap and it is clearly geared more towards traditional application development and delivery. What kind of tools do you use that you've seen be successful on the operation side of machine learning, you know, not just the data science side? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a kind of interesting question because I'm trying to make these tools right now to some degree. So like this, your CI, CD systems, I think, you know, I don't really like any of them yet. I will say there are some emerging things that are really interesting and useful. So experiment tracking systems, I think are very central to CI CD. So experiment tracking just means logging all of your various metrics and artifacts and data concerning your different experiments for machine learning. You know, you might be training lots of models, maybe, you know, lots of hyperparameters. You know, you might be changing these models all the time. You have lots of PRs fixing bugs, so on and so forth. You know, a systematic way of tracking the performance of all of these things and, and like seeing where regression might have happened and kind of tracking that systematically. And because there's, it's not just about code and tests, there's all the metrics associated with it. And you want to be able to like get to that in a central place. You don't want to go to GitHub to see the code and then go to some other thing to see the artifacts and then another thing to see the metrics. I mean, this is too much cognitive load. I think experiment tracking systems bring it together in a really nice way. And, and I think that is very central to CI CD because if you're going to do CI CD properly, like you said, it's kind of like a loop and you want to be able to, for example, when you open a PR and you run a bunch of tests, you want to log that in an experiment tracking system and then query, query that system in order to do a lot of some comparisons, even even if those that comparison is automated, you know, I think that's really important. Experiment tracking is a critical piece of developing a model. In order to find the best fit model, you have to try things. 
Try different hyperparameters, different evaluation data, different algorithms. After a while, it's easy for a data scientist to forget everything they've tried. That's where experiment trackers can come in. Experiment trackers track different experiment iterations, storing configuration files, model code, model weights, scripts, data versions, performance evaluation metrics, and lots more. This might sound related to the metadata conversation from our last episode, and that's because they are related. Similar to tools like TensorFlow Extended, experiment trackers will track metadata. The difference here is that experiment trackers are focused on the phase of model development prior to the training pipeline. You can think of it like an app developer who tries out different things on Git branches before they put in a pull request to the main branch to kick off a CI pipeline. Some popular experiment trackers are Weights and Biases, Comet ML, and Neptune AI. There are many others to look into. Now's a great time to tell you that none of the many products mentioned in this episode are from a sponsor, as this episode has no sponsors. So data versioning is another area. So things like DVC and Pachyderm, and there may be some other ones I don't remember. But I think you know that can be important. So things that help you version your data, I think that's really useful. And I think when you combine that with the experiment tracking, then you get something that helps you with reproducibility and kind of let you see what happened, what, what was the state of something that got you a performance of some kind. In software engineering, that's really important to be able to reproduce errors and bugs so you can debug, you know, to, you can understand what happened. And then there's the CI CD system itself. There's your typical players you know, like Travis or CircleCI or GitHub Actions or, you know, whatever you might use. I don't, I think GitHub Actions, I mean, I've been working a lot on extending GitHub Actions in ways that help data scientists. I don't think, it, you know, I don't think it's perfect yet. I think, you know, it's kind of bolting on something that's still slightly overfit to your mainstream software engineering. But GitHub Actions has like, is flexible enough to allow people to like hack it or build tools on it to extend it in ways that can make it work. So that's why, you know, I think it's promising. And that's why I work on that. We talked a lot about continuous delivery for ML in our last episode. One thing that Hamill is hinting at is that generic CI CD tools are typically overfit for traditional applications, but can serve ML use cases with enough elbow grease. But you know, there's a lot of other tools. So there's the service area is really large. So things like, you know, how do you serve models? How do you deploy them? And I think also people still struggle with the kind of the development environment and quickly iterating on models and spinning up their environment properly. You know, I think data scientists still struggle with that. Like their whole development workflow is a struggle. And so oh, there's a lot of tools across that whole spectrum is a really, really large surface area. And yeah, I don't think there's, and I don't think there's one thing that can rule them all, really. I haven't seen one thing that can rule them all, but yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities for tools. Is it just that this area is still fairly new and so companies haven't figured out how to appropriately create tooling for machine learning? I think that going back to our conversation about whether companies should even have machine learning to begin with. You should check out the first episode in this series if you want to hear that conversation. I think actually when you get into it, machine learning is a fairly expensive endeavor to 
take on. And so I don't think tooling happens unless it's on the critical path. Because like creating all this tooling, creating all this infrastructure, building this infrastructure, you know, and all this stuff kind of for a hypothetical scenario doesn't usually work out. Yeah, you were telling me a couple of weeks ago about how you were having trouble spinning up a virtual machine that had the resources you need to just test a model and you had to go out and build that tooling. And that struck me as, particularly as a DevOps person, as a little absurd because that is just basics of doing any kind of development. You know, the the DevOps team or SRE team or whatever you want to call them should provide those tools to the developers so that they can just spin things up. And the fact that you had to go out to, to build that yourself spoke volumes to how there is this mismatch in DevOps and applications as opposed to DevOps and machine learning. And I'm wondering, how should machine learning teams work with DevOps teams? How do you convey the tooling that you need to be successful, even that basic stuff like provisioning? And how do you kind of break down that silo so that you can get the help and the tooling that you need? Yeah, I think that it's not a matter of machine learning people working with DevOps teams. I think there needs to be DevOps teams that are explicitly trying to create things for machine learning if it's necessary because a lot of times what happens is data scientists come in and there's an existing DevOps team and data scientists start making requests against that DevOps team and these requests are very unique in nature and usually what happens is DevOps team just says we can't support that uh, just because it's too you know, different. And this is the same case in GitHub, for example. In GitHub, we have this struggle. Like, if we say, hey, we want to run GPUs on your Kubernetes cluster, it kind of is so anomalous that they might say this is going to, you know, this might not make sense for us to support. So I think, I think there needs to be a DevOps team for machine learning, almost. I mean, not almost, yes, it needs to. IT ops platform teams not being able to serve data engineers is a common story. To Hamel's point, it's not always about a lack of understanding. It's often that ops teams simply don't have the bandwidth or budget to support the things that data engineers are asking for. When starting out, I recommend you first choose an MLAS, machine learning as a service, platform, such as Azure ML, Databricks, or Google's AI platform. These platforms provide tools for building out experimentation environments, data versioning, training pipelines, model serving, etc. The challenge is going to be integrating those services into the way you build and deploy applications today. Unfortunately, there's no easy answer, but lots of potential solutions. Once you have a process you're comfortable with and your organization is beginning to develop strong MLOps skill sets, then look into cost optimizations and operational efficiencies by having your internal IT platform team take more ownership of the MLOps services, such as integrating Kubeflow or MLflow into their existing Kubernetes clusters. One thing that really struck us as we learned more about the tooling out there today 
is that there's been an explosion of tools that take the Unix model to problem solving, meaning they solve one thing and solve it really well. However, unlike Unix, there's no equivalent to the Unix shell in the ML world to get all of these one-off tools to work seamlessly together. Michal talked about that for a bit. All that explosive growth of tools provides you with some really cool tools, hit and misses, and also out of silos. There is no standard. There are not that many standards that people follow right now. So one tool talking to another, First of all, you need to know the collection of tools in the first place, right? And that requires auto experience experimentation. You have thousands of tools to pick and choose, and you want to, you know, fit every one into your workflow. And some will will work together well, some won't. You need you need some time to experience all of them, and then find out how to move from one tool to another for different steps in the development and the deployment process. And finally, once you find the way to to connect all of them, that's, that's, the, that's the biggest part, I think. So I'm sorry to say that there are no easy answers here. You'll likely need to find the best way to provide provisioning solutions for experiment environments, decide whether you're going to use Kubeflow or MLflow, which metadata store you're going to use, and which ones work with the training solution you've chosen. Then you're going to need to find the gaps between the solutions and build your own custom glue. Not to mention the need to understand the architecture of your existing applications so you can design a model promotion system that works with those existing applications. But hope is not lost. There's an army of open source developer groups and evangelists that are working together to build better standards so that tools can integrate more easily. To say that tooling interoperability is a place of intense opportunity would be a huge understatement. And rest assured, Kat and I will continue to meet more people making a real difference in the MLOps world, and we will continue to bring you great conversations that dive deeper into various aspects of this rapidly evolving landscape. And with that, we're signing off. So until next time, I'm Kat. And I'm Carl. Thanks for listening. Thank you.